Listener Production. When we had younger reporters come in, the thing that I would forever ask of them, don't tell me what you think, tell me what you know. Particularly at the ABC, we're not paid for our opinions, we're not paid to guess. What you know is such a stronger thing that you can rely and hang a story on than what you think. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and importantly, the host of The Good Oil. Now, you should be familiar with it by now, but if you don't know the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff and the real stuff, which as you know, is what we do on this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Today's guest, as always, is someone who really knows what's going on because he's at the absolute centre of the nation's well, politics. Brett Worthington is the federal political correspondent with ABC News Digital. Brett, welcome to The Good Oil. G'day, Scott. Mate, thank you for spending some time with us because I don't know if there's ever not an exciting or interesting time in politics. If you're a political nerd, some people just don't want to hear any more about it. I, I kind of get that as well. But uh, I'm a bit of a politics and economics nerd, mate, as you as you might uh, not be surprised to hear. So I'm fascinated to chat to you. Before I do, though, mate, your ABC News profile uh, says that your claim to fame is growing a backyard wheat crop when you when you were the Western Victorian <laughs> rural reporter. And I can't go past that. So with all the big issues that we've got to talk about, I first need to ask, how did you go with the wheat crop? Well, I've never been so closely watching the weather in my life as I was during that period. So I was the rural reporter. I was living with my best mate who um, we'd met in Horsham, Dan. He was the presenter of The Breakfast Show. So we were spending far too much time together and um, <laughs> had this great idea of growing this wheat crop. And I was out there, hands and knees, sowing every seed individually. Oh, wow. yeah. um, and it just, like I mean, it started as a bit of a joke. And then it was interesting just to kind of learn how a wheat crop grows and kind of to see things like impact of rain, which sounds so sounds so obvious. But like when it came time to harvest, we had to thresh it and it was getting put in um, pillowcases. And I think we called the Chicago Board of Trade to see what kind of prices we could get hey, if we were nice. to sell it on okay. the export market. So, and what happened What happened to that wheat? Well, I, I'm sure, it, given the way the ABC is, I'm sure it's probably sitting in a, um, sitting in a container in the Horsham office still. <laughs> <laughs> I was declared. I was declared, uh, mate. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if you, if you if you grow wheat to uh, to get you know become as one uh, with the people of Western Victoria. What do you do to uh, to get yourself ready for to acclimatise to the political beat uh, in Parliament House? Well, I think that um, I, I hadn't thought about this for a long time. But when I was a kid growing up, my mum used to volunteer. Well, not volunteer. Work at the elections and would set up the electoral booths and. I think my favorite video as a kid was how to set up an electoral booth. <laughs> All the things, like it had an animation on, like the setup time, the type of pencil, when it opens, when it closes. And then like we'd record election night if we had anything on. So I think, you know, seven, I had a 21st birthday. And so I recorded um, the full ABC coverage. And after the the day after the 21st, sat down and watched um, the bulk of that's, that night's coverage. So it was probably always... Uh, going to work out that I would ha- um, come this way, but it took a long time to get here. And I was meant to come for three months and that was six and a half years ago. So <laughs> I think I'm here to stay. 
that is fascinating. We'll get some of the, the key political issues. Uh, just to share some of your nerdery. I, <laughs> There's uh, a lot of it. I love election night. I also love budget night, again, for my sins, Hist- to the point where this is a story that I can tell happily with you and uh, most of our listeners will cringe. I used to live in Melbourne and I finished work. I worked late for some reason. I had to get home for the, I wanted to get home for the budget. And I actually got a taxi rather than a tram, so I'd be home in time. So, so that you know, it's not not exactly the same as watching uh, how to set up electoral booth videos, but but there's there's some similarities there. Oh, I still remember that fear of my first budget of sitting in there and realizing, oh goodness, there is no backup plan. There's no no one tells you where the answers are. It's it's us, and so the consequences of getting this wrong. Um, whereas now it's a kind of quite enjoy it. <laughs> Let, let's let's start there, mate. So this is the budget lockup I assume you're talking mm. about here. Um, yeah. Phones and computers, or at least internet access, left outside. You're, you're locked off from the world, and given the budget papers and some time to go through it and prepare your your, your thoughts. Take us inside the lockup just for a second. Treasurer's walking around, assistant treasurer's walking around, the PM's walking around. You guys have to try and digest what is a mammoth, you know, and, with, and actually harder because you're being you're being. Uh, let me not make this partisan, but you're being uh, directed in the direction that the party of the, the government of the day want you to look. Look over here. Here's the really cool stuff. Look at this. And you're trying to say, well, hang on, I've got a certain number of hours. I've got to produce a summary of what's going on. I've got to look for anything that's going to come out because someone else breaks a story I don't get or vice versa. It's a dog-eat-dog world in in, uh, in Canberra. I'm sure, I'm sure they love each other, but equally, you all want the scoop. What's that lock-up like? What's it feel like? What's it smell like? How does, it, how does the day kind of go? Yeah, so it's changed in the time that I've been here, which is largely um, a product of COVID. So when I was first doing the budget, we would all go down to the main committee rooms um, here at Parliament House and you'd be locked away. And it's something you could come late to, but you definitely can't leave early from. And like you say, like cut off from everything. So no smartwatches, no phones. You can have computers, but they're separated from um, broader internet. And you just have to try and spend time that just quiet time reading. And it's it's so rare in a place uh, here at Parliament. So like I work out in the main ABC Bureau and there's people going every which way, be it politicians coming in to do interviews or reporters dashing here or dashing there. So there's just constant noise. And to have this quiet period where you get to just stop and think. And it's so rare in, in a lot of modern journalism, unfortunately, that that ability to just stop. And that's kind of one of the things that I love most about the budget because you are completely cut off and no one can call and no one can email and everything can just have to have to wait. Um, and then like those fond memories of when the budget's about to end, there's like this stampede towards the doors <laughs> and they throw open the doors and this mad rush. And in the back in the day, it was the fittest people would be sent with the USB to charge up stairs. And Parliament's a, a bit of a labyrinth and certain um, stairs don't connect to certain areas. And You've right. got to make sure you've mapped out the right staircase to get there. And um, <laughs> but there's a lot less running that happens now. And now, okay. because of COVID and that we see there was no budget for I think about 18 months, we do them in our offices now, but that's a whole logistical problem in itself because you've got to, again, be completely cut off from the world. And so it is a, a time when everyone just is, is focusing in on this one document and then there's the performance art of it. So the treasurer coming around, it's there mostly for the TVs to get the, you know, the shot of holding the budget. Yes, political editor, this is what I think about this and, and questions. And then it's a, a press <laughs> conference that happens within it. Uh, and the the trouble is, like the hardest element is, is sort of what you say, that like this is, yes, it's an economic document, but it's a political document at its core. And so you're given the treasurer's speech. And 
there's lots of different opinions on what you read first. And I think you, once you read the speech, you get a sense of what the government is elevating. And you, of course, get press releases. But what features in that speech at its core is what the treasurer wants the nation to know about in terms of the decisions that they're taking. Um, and then there's um, Chris Richardson, the renowned um, economist, talks about the table of truth, which you always go looking for, which gives you a sense of, well, okay, that's what they're saying. But here is where we get a sense of what is happening with um, revenue, what is happening uh, with debt, what are we seeing for unemployment, what are we seeing uh, in terms of inflation. And it's trying to just cut through a lot of that. And my job here at Parliament on election night, I think, feels a bit easy because it's the overriding piece. And so you're trying to give a bit of a, a summarising everything that's going on. My colleagues who have to do the winners and losers piece of the budget, it's the hardest thing to tackle. It's the highest risk because we live in fear that you call something a loser and then you, with time, have to walk it back to being a winner. So those jobs are always much harder than than my one of, of pulling apart. But you want to go in with like a sense of what the numbers were last time, a sense of what the government was has already pre-announced because as much as you've got the budget there, you've already got stuff that's already been announced and you're trying to cut through and work out, okay, what's new? What are they cutting, if anything? And as you get closer to elections, the cuts tend to be fewer and fewer. Uh, and just trying to work out a few little tricks like where do they put the bit where it says decisions taken but not yet announced. That's usually your election kitty. But being at the ABC, one of the great elements is because we are a bigger team, we've got great colleagues like Kat Sullivan who's working in the rural land and she can be fully across what is happening there. I've got colleagues who have special areas they can focus on and we can bring all that knowledge together and try and um, cover all bases. Mate, um, I want to talk to you about, a little bit about your current role and we'll get back to the broader politics again in a second. You're the federal political correspondent with ABC News Digital. And the digital bit, of course, has been, it feels like it's been around forever. And, and, and you know, for, for most most working lives these days, if you've got a little bit less hair than me and uh, when it was around, it was a little bit uh, a little bit greyer. Digital is where it's all at, at at some level. And not only because, you know, at one point, digital was simply a newspaper online. But it's become so much more than that. The skills, the opportunities, the abilities, the way digital is used, it is the most immediately available, accessible. You know, TV and radio have their own special components because it's more personal at some level. You're hearing or you're watching. But digital has opportunities that those things don't have, to be in different places, to present data differently, to be responsive. Talk us through that, mate, in terms of your, your, your current role and how that kind of feeds into what you do, how politics is covered. Um, just give us a, kind of the digital lens, if you would. Before I joined the ABC, I was a, a newspaper reporter. And where I've ended up at the ABC um, after being a, a reporter in, and in this current role now, it does feel a lot like being a newspaper reporter again, where just in terms of the complaints side of it. And so if you, <laughs> if you miss something that was yeah. on the radio, then you know, it's ten, it's two seconds and it's gone. Um, I just remember the newspapers, like people were able to bring in that newspaper and sort of <laughs> wave it in your face and say, look at this here. And it's a lot like that with the, with the website as well. So you can see it, a person can reread and reread that sentence over and over again in the way that you might not uh, in traditional broadcasts in terms of TV and, and, and radio. So I think that a lot of the skills that I had from a newspaper background have, have come in handy now. And I think out of broader sense of the way the ABC views digital, that too has changed a lot in the time that I was here. So, you know, when I was a rural reporter, we used to do our stories for the country hour and then you'd chuck the audio online or you'd put your four sentences and your audio and, and that would be it. And now it's very much viewing 
what is a digital product that is both has audio or potentially has video or is a written piece for the website or how do we design something that if most people are consuming the news on their phone or how you display a complicated story on a phone is so much different to how you might do it on the desktop or how you might do it on a tablet. So of course. Yeah, as yeah, much yeah. as there are a lot of, there are so many opportunities that exist um, for digital uh, reporting, there also comes a finessing that's happened in, in particularly in recent years. And the ABC talks a lot about its um, digital future because, you know, we you see the, the audience trends and how people are consuming uh, digital versus traditional broadcast platforms. Now, that just means you might have the ABC Listen app instead of listening on the radio, and that would be considered a, a digital product as well. You might be watching something on iView instead of watching it on the on the TV. So working out how do, how do you tell stories in the best, the best platform has been an, an interesting part for the ABC. Um, and I think like, you know, we talk about at the moment these tax cuts and the debate about that. One of the great things that we've been able to do here is um, you can plug in a tax calculator into that story so that a person can interact with it in a way in which you wouldn't have been able to do in a you know a radio or a TV piece. And I think getting into that has been um, you've seen this major modernization uh, of the ABC and that changes how recruitment works and who the kind of people that they you look to bring into the organization are because having a skill for a traditional broadcast um, platform isn't necessarily the skill set that is um, needed uh, in, in a modern modern digital organization. It's tough too, I guess, because, I mean, radio and TV have always evolved, but go back 10 years before digital really took off in, in, a, in a very interactive way, TV and radio had been around for 50 and 80 years or so, and, and it probably, the skills were reasonably understandable and knowable, and you could you could optimize for those particular skills almost to your point part of it is what do you have what, what can you do but also uh, what what would you be able to do as things continue to evolve how how does that kind of play out when it comes to the people you work with the recruitment the strategies it, kind of inventing the plane while flying it's a horribly overused cliche but it's not miles away from that because you're right the digital team you have now i guess will be doing very different things in five years time in all likelihood yeah, and I think I think that's a good thing in many ways, and it's sort of like you need to walk this line of both servicing the audience that you have today, and also fostering and, and finding the audience of the future. And I think um, there is ways in which you both pay respect to the audience that you've got now, and also find out a ways to engage with a new audience. And I think one of the one of the great um, shames of, of the way in which sometimes social media is viewed and I should flag this by saying I, I don't have Facebook I don't have Twitter I find that they're platforms that I don't um, I don't really ever want to engage with but there's this idea of you know if it's a thing for social media it's dumbing down and I think that misses the point in time it's just how you're telling a story is different and you know I look at, at my mate Rich Willingham in, in Victoria and he's telling a traditional political story in so many ways but he's also doing a version of it for social media where he's talking um, in landscape instead of in portrait. And so I think that there are, we can take um, people who have had a whole variety of careers in journalism and take their core skills of being a journalist, of being a gatekeeper, assessing the news and just telling it uh, in a different way. And I think that um, that's something that, that you see changes on a, on a daily basis. And I often think about um, This American Life and this stat is probably out of date and, you know, was at the cutting edge in so many ways of, of podcasting, but at its core is an, a radio program that originates from from public media. Uh, and given how it's moved and changed over over the years, I think they had a kill rate of thirty percent into their stories. And so, 
as you imagine, one third of all the things that you go out, hit the cutting room floor, and they're able to do that because of their funding models, but they're also means that the quality that comes with it is so much higher. And it, it says to me that there's an element of taking risks and being willing to fail and then learning from that failure. And I think that is harder at an organization like the ABC because uh, the stakes are so much higher because we are publicly funded and more is expected of us than um, an organization that might be corporately funded. But I think that trying to instill that culture of, of, of taking experiments and taking risks and trying new things is one that um, comes with, you know, you might hold your breath a little bit at times, but I think there's no way to work out what you need to be doing in five years unless you try new things. And I think that that can be a bumpy road at times, but if we keep kind of pushing ahead with the idea of how do we meet audiences where they are instead of hoping that they'll just come to us, um, then I think that that's probably the best path that we, we need to be pursuing. Yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Mate, I will date stamp this. We're recording this on the 5th of February, and I do that because uh, Parliament is sitting today for the first time in months. Uh, so I very much appreciate you taking a bit of time to have a chat with us. Um, also, first question time for a while, which uh, we're recording before that question time. So uh, again, whatever breaks between now and, and this <laughs> podcast going to air, uh, our listeners at least know what's what's going on there. But all of that said, mate, um, could, could you give us a sense of how you see politics in 2024 both in and of itself but but maybe importantly because you've been doing this for a while now and you've you know you've seen changes you've seen governments come and go what's your what's your take on and i don't mean necessarily party politics just yet but politics in general if i said but 2024 australian poli- federal politics you know what what are you what are you seeing what are you feeling what are you hearing what are you what are you taking from from the way politics is being done at the moment yeah i think there's a lot of people that um in the parliament are wanting to try and, and do new and different things because I think that there's this consciousness that both media writ large is struggling to to tap to reach the audiences that we might be once reached and I think COVID in particular saw these new highs in terms of the numbers of people um, that were coming to our platforms and, and seeking information and as the kind of water recedes back out again uh, your the political class is also noticing that as well so the, you know, those premier press conferences, you think about those late night Scott Morrison press conferences, the numbers of people that were tuning in because it's vital, crucial information. And we'll see that again in emergency broadcasting. Unfortunately, when be it a, be it a flood, a fire, or a cyclone, people will continue to come back to, to places like the ABC. But I think there's that broader sense of people want to just get on with their lives. And that means that be it a politician getting booed at, at, at the Australian <laughs> Open. Um, yeah. The same thing might be happening at, a, at a, a musical event. Like there's a large cohort of this country that would happily live their lives without not having to interact with politicians. And I think that creates a problem for politicians in terms of when they need to go to people to make sure that you've got people that are listening and that you can find them. And at the same time, that's the same struggle that we uh, as media are, are facing to work out. News avoidance is a huge problem. Um, People are, are wanting to just absolutely tap out uh, of the news at times. And then how do you, when you've got vital information, get that to people? Right. Yeah. And I think that's a problem that both us and the political class will face. And I think that there is, if you look at, you know, there's may, elections happening around the world um, this year. And I, I think that it, the Australian political class will be closely watching, particularly the US and, and the UK, uh, to see how it is politicians interact with um interact with um voters i think my the thing that causes me great what a concern is that this death of shame that we have seen in the political class and that goes right across 
<laughs> the political divide and parliaments uh, rely on institutions being adhered to. And typically, because it's that inability of the parliament to actually do something about an elected member, but typically if a politician does something wrong, they feel the shame when that comes to earth and they take the personal responsibility to step back or step aside or own up and front up to it. And when that no longer, when shame no longer carries that um, in the political class, if the politician isn't going to feel bad about the decision or if they're not going to step back or they're not going to front up and admit they've done, they've done the wrong thing, then how do you hold account or how do you hold people in power to an account? And I think that's something that the political, that the journalistic class, we too need to be receptive to where we get it wrong to fronting up and saying, okay, we got it wrong in this instance and we need to do better and, and we'll try and do better next time. Can I, can I double down on that, mate? I, I'm mindful I'm going to bring up some examples here from political hey. uh, parties, and and you you need to you know um, treat it as you as you need to. So I'll, I'll ask the question. Feel free to to dance around or, or answer it as as clearly and logically as you can uh, within your own constraints. I, I've I've often thought that death of, of, of I like the death of shame. I've, I've used different phrases, but I, I love that that phrasing because. You think about Richard Nixon resigning from the U.S. presidency. You think about uh, New South Wales Premier Barry Farrell, who resigned over a bottle of Grange, undeclared. And you know that that's they are they are for better or worse the right decisions based on the existing principles at the time. I won't necessarily call them out a principled person, although I say they're unprincipled. But you know, I just want to be clear on what I'm saying here in terms of the principles that led to that. Um, Howard and Hawke staffers and sorry ministers stepping down for for perceived wrongdoing that these days would be swept under the carpet, ignored and waiting for the media cycle to kind of move on. I, and again, I'll speak for me, not you, uh, and I won't make this an editorial, but uh, it, it strikes me one of the great seismic shifts that Donald Trump's first presidency, maybe only, but first at least for now, um, brought to the table was that that very idea of just the, the bluster through, the idea of I don't have to be accountable, I don't have to take responsibility, I'm just going to keep pushing forward and... As a politician, that's a problem. Media, there's issues. As an electorate, though, the Americans at least seem to say, that's okay, we don't mind. And and it strikes me that a little bit, I've, I've got a line in business, which is you're only as profitable as your least rational competitor. And it strikes me in politics, we only get the quality of politicians and politics broadly that they're prepared to police themselves, that there is no, for whatever we might have assumed was electoral or electorate policing of, we don't like that person, they must go. It strikes me at least, maybe it always was or maybe it's new, but these days, as long as you can outlast the, the news the headlines, you're kind of off and away. Is that something you can respond to with that? Uh, what do you want to, to you know, tread on, on partisan lines? Yeah, I think that like one of the great troubles is because our news cycle is so fast now that so much of it is chasing this bouncing ball. And the consequence of that is if you are uh, a politician, you're head of business, you're, you're a journalist that's caught up in, in trouble, if you can just hold on long enough until that ball bounces in another direction, you can tend to, to hold on. Like I think back to, you know, when Bridget McKenzie stepped down um, from the from the quote unquote sports frauds scandal, it was really the last time that a politician stepped down because of uh, a decision that was taken within their portfolio remit. Um, I do think though that. From the time that I've been here, the one thing that the L where shame still exists um, or where there's still consequences more generally is typically if anything to do with a sex scandal of the full gradient that, that you've seen. Now, um, in the time that I've been here, that has been a common thread of some level of, of affair 
or um, broader sex scandal that, um, and not wanting to to touch on any any individual, but that is the one that has tended to to cut through in a way in which if you do something uh, within your portfolio remit uh, that is controversial, uh, you know, you can survive uh, any consequences, and you can survive as long as your leader is willing to hold on to you. And so, to look at the the former government, Scott Morrison. Um, with the exception of Bridget McKenzie, who uh, is a national and now that played a role in it, he was willing to stand by his politicians in, in thick or thin. And, you know, if your boss isn't going to demand that you go, then you're definitely not going to to step down as well. But I think that's why seeing what happens in the US in particular this year, um, because that does so heavily affect uh, our politics here, I think pr- way more so than what's happening in the UK um, but I think the consequences of that US election, there'll be a lot of politicians domestically watching it. And then we're likely going into an election early next year. So after that one ourselves. So how that influences what we see next year will be really interesting to see. And it does seem to me there is some return from those more extreme times, whether they were, again, we'll find out later this year and early next year. But there, there is, there does seem to be a little bit more of a sense of both in the UK in particular and here. Uh, policies be a little bit more accountable, a little bit more sense of maybe being wary of treading too far. I mean, arguably Scott Morrison's loss came down to that general sense of individually no one really paid a price, but collectively they did because eventually the public just went, yeah, well, no, we're, we're probably done with you guys right now. Um, and there does seem to be some sort of... Uh, Maybe just stepping back from from what's otherwise been an extreme level of that lack of shame, lack of consequence. Is that is that fair, or am I being too Pollyanna and too optimistic about it? No, I I think you're right in in saying that there was a broader sense that um you know it was the the, the country had moved, and um I think what did Boris Johnson say when he was at his um when he stepped down about when the herd moves, and so you saw that in in say at the last Australian Eklund, the herd moved. Um, I think what is what is really interesting in the political climate that, that we sit in here in Australia, and particularly as you edge towards an election, we often forget that Labor really only holds majority government by a tiny margin. Uh, and so as much as the path back to government for the for to majority government for the coalition is really difficult, uh, unless it can win back those teal seats, uh, it has to fundamentally rewrite our, our electoral map. Now, the coalition has long talked about uh, making gains in the outer suburban electorates that Labor have held as as strongholds, and and Labor, you'd be interesting to see if they learn from from Fowler and what you saw in that that um, at the last election where they parachuted Christina Keneally into that electorate, the independent Di Lee, who you know sits on the crossbencher but it doesn't associate a, as a teal one because she was reflective of her community, and arguably that is the same claim that the broader teals in in, in Sydney, Melbourne, and, and Western Australia. Um, would say as well. But if the coalition can't win back those seats, and if Labor loses a couple of seats, well, you do go back into hung parliament type territory. And then suddenly the Teals, um, the Greens, the Independents suddenly have a bigger role to play. And we've seen at the moment, it's quite a favourable Senate in a lot of ways, uh, it would be the front runner to, um, to form minority government. But just imagine this place in, you know, two years' time, if it was didn't have majority control in the reps or the Senate, it really will be interesting to see, does Australia reach a point where there's this great talk about consensus politi- polit- politics and working together across the aisle, 
or does it do what we saw um, after the, the 2010 election and really fuel tribalism even further uh, and see the real great divides between the coalition and Labor really open up again? It's fascinating, mate. They're such, they're such great points. And we are seeing that the rise of the independents broadly or minor parties broadly, you throw David Pocock in there, you could throw Jackie Lambie uh, out of Tasmania, Adam Bant, Andrew Wilkie, of course, um, out of Tassie. A very much a, I think a... If, if, if there is a death of shame, I'm hopeful, and I don't, they're not these people in particular, but it does seem like the independents might be the torchbearers for parliamentary standards. It does seem to the outsider that... The major parties, when it kind of comes to um, a, a bit of scrutiny, a bit of a, you know, it, it's like, well, I don't like you and you don't like me, but we kind of get to be us. You know, it's, it's, it's you, know, you know, you, you, I don't like you, but but you're my brother, so I get to, you know, fight fight the other guys for you, that right. kind of stuff. The, the rise of the independents and minor parties as a group, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, 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 I, can, I can nail my colours to the mask maybe in a way you can't, mate. So, again, apologies. But it, it just does strike me they are bringing some of that not shame, but but responsibility. That's that expectation back to a parliament that's maybe lost it because of that cosy duopoly we had for too long. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be something interesting in the ACT elections later this year. So the ACT is firmly um, a Labor stronghold. Um, the Greens had huge gains at the last election. The Liberals went back um, quite quite shockingly. But there is this emergence of of independents starting to announce candidacies in the ACT elections. Um, one uh, more high-profile um, person that's running is Craig Emerson, the former Labor minister's son. He's running as an independent. He's worked very closely with um, David Pocock. And it will be interesting in, in Canberra, which is very much um, at the federal level, there is not a single Liberal uh, in the federal parliament within the ACT. So, But that doesn't mean that there's not dissatisfaction in parts with the Labor territory government. And it'll be interesting to see to what extent can the independents have any gains uh, here. Now, the way that I'm pretty sure it's Hair Clark that, that we use here. And the way that works is just absolutely blows my mind and it's all too complicated for me to understand. But that will be a, an initial test on, in a stronghold, can the independents make further gains? Um, we know that the um, Climate 200 and the Teals are wanting to to push further into places like Queensland. I think Queensland will be super interesting in the next election because Labor needs to find seats there uh, in the same way the coalition needs to find seats in Victoria. Um those seats that the Greens won uh, in Brisbane, they very much targeted them. Are they able to hold them if the Teals pick up some some seats in Brisbane? We are really starting to see this electoral map start to change. And what does that mean then in terms of how, how governments function uh, here in Australia? And I think we are still a long way off this idea of um, Teals and independents completely fundamentally changing federal politics. But it just takes a few more and they fall into minority government and then suddenly um, the, uh, the independents in the lower house will have a much bigger bigger role to play in the way that we've seen Jackie Lambie and David Pocock play uh, in the Senate since the last election. There is the constant struggle between policy focus and what some people call race calling the idea of you know the politics being its own thing rather than rather than the way through which we debate argue and pass policy changes given your job i, I imagine it must be a constant struggle for you too because they are legitimate stories but the the race calling stuff crowds out by definition the time the headlines the uh, there's unlimited space online but realistically there's you know page one and page two of google and then there's everything else how do you think through the right way to cover 
the the combination of stories, the policy versus the race calling stuff? How, how does that kind of filter through to the way you have to do your job? Yeah, I think that um, that who's up and who's down is such a kind of like, it changes on the day. And what, But what does that ultimately matter to the audience that, that you're trying to talk to? And I think one of the great, one of the great sins that, that people can fall into, particularly um, here at working at Parliament House, is writing a story, be it a, a news story, be it analysis, that is for the rest of the press gallery and not for the audiences <laughs> that you're trying to yeah. reach. Showing off yeah. to your colleagues is so boring. From Investors a, are the like, same, mate, just quietly, right? yeah. <laughs> and it's just sort of like, <laughs> if you've got the chance to get one story to someone out there, uh, are you going to waste your chance on something that is so caught up in politics's own self um, or are you going to try and get what this means to um, to the audience and I think one of the great things that I've been able to, to do with, with time here um, that the ABC has been able to work with um, some great great and talented writers and we've seen that if you put out a piece in the afternoon that can be analytical it allows for you know we would talk about it one and done and so it's a way in which you can give a story to to a reader that's in the afternoon and they catch up on the news of the day, but they also get some analysis about what that means. And um, that's a fortunate thing that I've, you know, been able to been able to do here. But we still have to both work out what is the news of the day and you need to send that out to um, to the audience and you need to cover the daily incremental movements. But you also need to make sure that we continue to see the forest from the trees. And if you're too focused on what are you seeing in front of you, you times move that that herd is moving, or you miss um, a, a broader trend that's that's starting to develop. And um, I think that like one of the the great things that I do, and I'm absolutely not for a single second suggesting that this is representative of all of Australia, but talkback radio is just a real great sense of where people are at because they're the most agitated people typically would be, yeah, be, yeah, be calling right. in. And yeah, like, you know, yeah. I was listening to to Raf in Radio Melbourne last week and um, the talking point was it was in the wake of um, the government changing stage three. It was like, come on, what have you what would you want the government to do? And there were just people calling in from all over the place saying, get rid of personal income tax, lift the GST, do this and do that. And you know, for so long people always talk about like people aren't interested in politics. Well, I don't think people are interested, unless you like me and you work here, people are that interested in who's up who and who's doing ins and outs of politics, but people are interested in what affects their lives. And so much of politics does, be it your bin getting emptied through to how much tax you're paying when, when your employer takes it out each fortnight, that is what affects people's lives. And you've got to keep your eyes on on that prize. And I'm not for a single second going to say I've always managed to find that right balance and you know, I remember the leadership's bills and you get so caught up in like yeah, yeah. the chaos of them and like the the one, um, the the Turnbull one in particular, I was the raw reporter and it was just like, it was my first experience at Parliament House and it was like unlike anything I've ever seen before. <laughs> and you get caught up in it, but you've really got okay. to remember in the, you know, when cooler heads prevail, just continue to see those forests from the trees. That's your old, old all politics is local thing, right? It's like it's, it's how, right. how it affects people. Can I ask the other side of that question then? How there are regular, I'll say criticisms, not of not of you or you guys generally, but of media more broadly about the policies that kind of get raised and then get left because something else pops up. That you mentioned the, the speed of the news cycle before. How, how do you how do you think about the responsibility of of journalists in that context between covering the new stuff because it's new and news is literally news. That's what's called news. Um, 
but but that kind of responsibility to to represent the voter or the country or the the uh, I don't know what standard you kind of hold yourselves to, but that idea of actually this is still important, and yes, it might be three days since it was you know first announced or broke or whatever, and yes, I know there's been thirty two other press conferences in the meantime, but this thing is still important, and and we need to do it justice. How do you how do you make those judgments? Because you are kind of to some degree you know, you're curating for me and for everyone else who reads your stuff, and and so you say, well, actually, Scott, I, I don't this these things have happened. This is what I'm writing about. Obviously, it needs to be popular because you guys you know, need people to read the, the stuff you write. But equally, it's got to be, you know, deep and worthy and, and all those things. How, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I, I think it's like it's it's not easy. <laughs> and like, yeah, you wonder on on a daily basis, like you know, there's no short like any reporter who walks into our bureau or any other bureau in this place, there's no shortage of stories they could do that day. And it's about triaging what is what is important and like. You know, that's one of the great things about the budget, that in it, that ability to just stop all the incoming and then just to kind of think, okay, what are the the big pieces that, that we need to know about? And I think it's it's about relying on the strength. So we're a bigger bureau here at Parliament House. So you've got, you know, um, people in their sixties through to people in their twenties, and that covers a whole range of different experiences in different communities. And you can only hope that that all feeds in to um an editorial meeting where kind of people are discussing what is the the news of the day and what should we be covering, what what aren't we covering, what do we need to get into? And the ABC is very fortunate because of its size that we don't like not all federal politics should come from this place here. And there are reporters in other parts of the country who are much better placed to take on a story that we can support them with as opposed to us doing it all. And because if everything comes from here, it's so heavily going to be influenced by Canberra and and what is going on. You know, I get irked when people talk about the Canberra bubble because Canberra itself is where I live. I don't live near the parliamentary triangle. I have a dog. I go to the dog park. I spend most of my morning talking with my 80-year-old friend, Helen, about, you know, what our dogs are doing, what she's been reading, watching and seeing. Um, Federal politics does not interact with the large part of, of the life here. But it does feel like when the politicians come, and we've seen it with behavior over such a long time, that politicians and even journalists treat it like school camp and that the consequences don't apply so much when when they come here and i think that trying to weave through all of that is is no easy feat um but you've just got to rely on knowing that you reach out to enough people in your life in your journalistic circles you listen to enough things you read enough things um if you're a you're a journalist you should be reading everything from the australian to the guardian and you should understand what's being put to air on 2GB and you should understand what's being put to air on the ABC because that's the width and breadth of, of this nation and you can't be solely focused on, you can't work at the ABC and only listen to the ABC. It would be a disastrous, um, disastrous approach. How do you as a journalist, mate, this is obviously more, more uh, pointed for ABC employees because of the huge scrutiny you get. Um, I am on Twitter, unlike you. And I, I feel, I, I, I value the ABC incredibly highly. I really do. I, I live in a, a region, not rural, but I live in a region, um, Southern Highlands of New South Wales. And I've seen the ABC, I, I value the work you guys do so incredibly highly. And yet, 
if you if you spend any time on Twitter, but, you've got those from the left accusing half your presenters of being biased and being LNP shills, and the other half of Twitter accusing you guys of running some sort of lefty campaign and 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 kind of you know uh, trying trying to destroy the, the country. You think, well, hang on, who are the ABC's friends? You know, they're not not left enough for some, not right enough for others. Which, by the way, probably means you get it pretty right most of the time because <laughs> you got if half the audience is annoyed half the time, you're probably doing a pretty good job. But how, how do you how do you uh, just as as a general question for journos broadly, but but for an ABC journal in particular? How do you manage your own preferences, your own personality, your own? I think I have a feeling one of your uh, more more uh, famous female ABC journalists said she never actually voted. She'd walk into the booth and, and put the the thing. I think that's right. Maybe it's an apocryphal story. But um, how, how do you manage your own preferences, your own policy ideas? How, how do you keep that level of? You need to represent the community. You need to call out the stuff that's important, and that has a value judgment by definition. How do you how do you try and keep as as unbiased and balanced as you can? Yeah, I think that I like I really like to vote. Um, so you know, I like happy to say that I've voted every chance that I've had since um, since I turned eighteen. I think day in day out as a journalist, and particularly, um, well, no, I'll do it as a journalist in the first instance. Everyone has opinions. Everyone. Uh, has biases, everyone has unconscious biases, but the skill of learning to be a journalist is you've got to learn to check that at the door, to then read a piece of information and respond to it um, according to all the skills that, that you've picked up over over the time. And I think that it's it's too simplistic at times to say, well, I, I don't vote because that shows I'm picking a side. Well, that doesn't mean that you don't have an inherent bias that still exists within you. But I also think that having that bias doesn't mean you can't be an independent and impartial journalist uh, in the work that you do. And I would like to think that um, when I go on to write a piece or I'm, I'm on the radio or I'm, I'm, I'm talking on a, a television program that I'd like to think I dish it out fairly and equally across sides <laughs> and that people wouldn't yeah. know how I, I, I personally vote. Everyone's going to have an assumption and, and all power to them. Um, and I think that that is so much more important at the ABC because it's a privilege to work at a place like this because of all the history that's come before us. And um, the community and taxpayers fund us. They don't fund our opinions. They fund us to offer them um, impartial and, unba- and balanced news. And I think that's a responsibility and that's why we should be held to a higher account than um, other, other media organizations because we are funded by the public and that's our responsibility. And that means, and, and I definitely wouldn't say I've always got this right, but copying up when you get it wrong um, like I, I, to let you in on how the sausage is made, I get to see all those complaints that come in for stories that have come out of our bureau <laughs> for the website. Yeah. And, yeah. um, it's, I find that when you write back to people and send a response to the complaint, in a lot of instances, people write back and go, oh, thanks. Thanks for getting back to me and, and letting me know. And of course there's a lot of disingenuous complaints that you might receive here, but a lot of people feel passionate about this because the ABC has been around for so long and, and that's their right. Um, to do that. I think on the social media side, um, all I would, would say there is I I remember the early days of, of Twitter and I thought it was great <laughs> and that fun they could have in those like big news events. Um, yeah. But coming here, and I'm sure that like if you, I've got friends that are lawyers and legal Twitter sounds great and research science Twitter sounds great and running Twitter sounds great. But as a political reporter, um, <laughs> seeing how just like, I get, I would get nowhere near half the stuff that my colleagues got and it was pretty gross, but I ultimately decided that I couldn't in good conscience interact with this website, seeing what my female colleagues in particular were copying on a daily basis from both 
um, left and right wing Twitter. And it was just, I felt that by being there, I was legitimizing a platform which was being toxic and awful treatment and outright defamation of, of um, my friends and colleagues. And I just didn't want to be a part of it um, ultimately. Yeah, don't blame me. Don't blame me, man. I want to ask you our four favorite questions in a second, but I want to, I want to just just pick your brain on, on on a single topic, which is a very, very, very big, broad question. But you've been uh, you've been at Parliament House for a while now. Uh, you've seen speaking of the sausages being made, you talk about the journalistic sausage. You've seen the the policy sausages, the parliamentary sausage being made as well. And I'm just curious if I if I and take this wherever you want, but if I said, you know, being there for that long. If you could change something about Australian politics, and I, I say politics with a little P on the capital P, so whether it's party politics or, or the, the policy, the parliament itself, um, that that milieu, if I can use that horrible horrible word, uh, if you could change something, if you could improve our, uh, uh, you know, the outcomes, the outputs of, of parliament, what would you what would you do? What would you change? How would you make it better? I think that fundamentally, you need to change question time. Uh, it's it's just, if you ever watch the British um, Question Time, it's incredible. And it's just like the, and I, I say this knowing we will, it will likely never change in Australia <laughs> because what government would actually want to get rid of the way in which it currently works? But it is bad for the de- democracy in, in a couple of regards. It's bad because that's such a focal point that, um, that most people see and experience of the parliament and it is the most competitive part um, of the day. So it looks as if these people hate each other. And one of the great things being here that you get to see is the committee work and you get to see politicians traveling around together and they actually agree on a whole lot of things. And there's a lot of non-controversial legislation that just goes through the parliament and we wouldn't cover it because again, we're fed by, by this beast as well. And, you know, maybe it is something we do eternally need to reflect on. Um, but it's also, ne- a question is never answered. And that's a problem um, in my mind. It's just a Labor politician should feel like they can ask a tough question of their own government so that their community can see that question being asked and they should be entitled to an answer. And it's humiliating, frankly, for some of these politicians to have to get up and ask a question of their own side of politics because that's what's expected of them today. And there are some politicians who will not do it and they'll never get questions and they'll ask not to do it. And I think that it would be so much better. And maybe that means question time's not every day and you need to kind of take the, the rejig and rework out how that works. But um, it provides theatre, but I'm just not convinced that it's great in, great for the democracy in terms of the product that, that we're getting dished up. Yeah, it's a nice answer. I um, the the gotchas from from the opposition benches again, whatever stripe or whatever term, and and the Dorothy Dixes, you know, with the <laughs> treasurer, please let us know how how well the economy is doing and right. how much money you've spent and why why Australia should be happy that you're our treasurer. It's a, it's it is a bit it's a bit you know, it's it, it's also kind of to some degree I think the the reality of the uh, you know we are a very short attention span thing. So if you can if you can see a fifteen second clip from question time where someone's yelling at someone else, that becomes the the politics politics diet and maybe no surprise that trust in politics is, is waning uh, Brett you've been very 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 generous with your time mate so I will let you go but I do want to ask our favourite four questions um, uh, you've just said you read everything from, from the Australian to the Guardian and listen to everything from 2GB to ABC uh, but other than that maybe there is no other than that what are you watching reading streaming uh, listening to what's, uh, what's got your attention electronically in, uh, in terms of either, either work or, or, or leisure uh, downtime so it hit me like a freight train last year, um, Australian Survivor. <laughs> I just All right. had okay. watched it like a mi- American one a million years ago, 
Yeah. Um, in the broadcast in last year's season, I managed to watch, uh, I think seven earlier seasons while that season was, was going to air. Um, it's just great. Like I really, I, there are group chats where it is obsessed with talking about it. Um, it's just a nice break from everything that we get to, to do here. I think it's edited nice, wonderfully nice. and um, it's on a lot. And so you can just leave this place behind, um, on whatever nice. nights it's on. I think it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday or something. Um, and yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, I'm quite excited that it's back. Nice. I like how you pretend you didn't know what days it was on. That was nicely done. Where people do you know. Honestly, it's not my diary, I'm, I'm I promise. I'm sure about Wednesday. It's my main thing. <laughs> uh, mate, uh, obviously, you, you're, a, you're a political watcher. You're a policy watcher. What other trends, or maybe maybe political or, or uh, policy trends, what trends are you watching? What's got you fascinated about the way the world is going? Um, I think this one is, um, it's definitely away from, it's way away from politics, but just the way in which plant-based diets are a thing that as a, yeah, right. as a culture, um, there's an Australian uh, pastry chef called Phil Curry, who's the head pastry chef at Harrods. Um, and he's just put out a book and the whole thing is about everything is plant-based in the, in the food that he's producing at, at Harrods. Uh, and then his cookbook and trying to get it into to people's households. And, you know, if you think about it, it's vegan, but there's a total rebranding that's occurred here right. in terms of what is plant-based versus yeah, what is yeah. what is vegan. And you've seen a lot of culture wars here at Parliament about milks and, and meat alternatives and whatnot. But um, for the longest of time, I um, I think especially since being a rural reporter, I've always been interested in, in food security and um, how is it that as a society, our diets will change um, over the, the years to come is something that, you know, I feel it's, I'm 37 and I feel that um, the, the the plate that I sit down to eat at dinner tonight is very different from the plate that I would have sat down to 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and how is it this rebranding that we're seeing potentially around plant-based um, diets is potentially going to change how uh, we eat around the world? I should have absolutely been across that concept, but I love the idea of vegan is about the person, but plant-based is about the food, right? You, you yeah. change very clearly the relationship people have with it. You don't have to be a person to have a thing. You simply choose a, a meal type or a protein type or whatever else. It's a very, very different. That's that's fascinating. I love that. Thank you. And then, like you've got this, you know, cultural institution in Harrods and you've got yeah. this guy from Western Sydney who's there <laughs> doing some incredible things at yeah. this, you know, stuffy institution. I think it's, um, I think it's one to watch. That's super cool. Uh, mate, uh, what advice would you give someone who is interested in a job in journalism? <laughs> no, I think do it. <laughs> I, I hesitate for a second there. Um, I think the things that you've got to be interested in is just listening and trying to just throw out preconceived notions. And when we had younger reporters come in, the thing that I would forever ask of them is, um, I don't know, like, don't tell me what you think, tell me what you know, particularly at the ABC. We're not a paid for our opinions. We're not a paid to, to guess. If you talk to people, you can then build an understanding about what is going on. And then what you know is such a stronger thing that you can rely and hang a story on than, than what you think. And if what you think hasn't te potentially been stress tested, what you know has been tested and you can kind of work out this is a fact or this is something that, that's happening. So 
think about knowing more so than thinking potentially. Just wait on Twitter, mate, because there's no knowing on Twitter. There's only just <laughs> thinking. It's, 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 pure, it's pure opinion. You, you, you'd From go what nowhere. I hear, I'm not missing anything. <laughs> You're really, really not. Hey, um, I, I don't know. I don't know about journalists. I'll ask you a, a leading question and then I'll ask you the actual question. I, I don't know what proportion of journalists you would imagine or would describe themselves as optimists versus pessimists. Maybe just a bunch of realists. I, I imagine there's got to be a hard nose kind of uh, something about that. I don't know how much optimism you have to leave at the door. Uh, but are you an optimist or a pessimist? A, a realist? How would you describe yourself um i think realist i am heavily pessimistic at times that leans into optimism <laughs> and um i think a way in which i got a reminder about that is i don't mean to talk too much about food security but uh recently i was in morocco and looking at global food security and um we were discussing you know what was happening in in the middle east and how that was affecting food security and how what's happening in Ukraine is continuing to have huge implications in terms of food security, in terms of where wheat is coming from, how people are producing enough food to, to feed their nations. Because if you can't feed people where they are, it promises migration. If you've got migration, as we're seeing in, in parts, it can lead to conflict. It can lead to um, the rise of different political movements and, and unsettling. The thing that like the scientists, every scientist that I talked to while I was away, they were all confident that their science could help tackle climate change and they could um, crack that nut and they could find out a way in which what the globe is dealing with that their science could help to continue to feed the world what no one had an answer for was the geopolitical piece and it's the politicians and it is all of this element is completely out of their control now these scientists could solve uh, how to produce these crops that will feed the world but if the politicians and the broader geopolitical piece doesn't also fit into place you will see unrest and um, wars continue to, to wage in parts, which will further exacerbate that food security problem. And so it was a little bit of both optimism and pessimism all at the, all at the same time. <laughs> Very good. I would normally then ask you what you're optimistic about. I'm going to do that anyway. So despite your realism, despite your sometime pessimism, uh, if I ask you to put on your optimist hat, what are you optimistic about, Brett? I am optimistic in the goodwill of people. And I think that as much as we all what you see the worst of of people uh, at times in social media at times in journalism i think by and large people are, are nice and good people and it is refreshing when i go to that dog park and there's a new dog there running around and a new owner is wandering in um, people are leaning in towards talking with each other communicating meeting each other halfway um, and that probably sounds a bit i don't know grandiose but i think at a person-to-person -person level, you know, we're nice people. The further away we are from each other, the kind of worse and more it starts to starts to break down. Mate, you've been very, very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>